I want to start this morning off by some crowd participation. So just you can raise your hand there in your seat. But how many of you would say that you are a competitive person? Maybe, or maybe just more competitive than the average person. Okay, quite a few of us. Now, your competitiveness might kind of depend on the situation going on. So let's try it this way. How many of you, when sports are involved... Either something changes in you, you become a different human, whether that's playing sports, rooting for sports, watching your kids. So how many of you, the competitiveness just takes a whole different level there? Okay, uh, this is a safe place. You can be honest about this next one. How many of you, when it comes to driving, like you become a competitive person? Right? It's like, ooh, I'm going to beat them through the stop line. I just want to confess, I do this thing sometimes while driving. Uh, this is a grace place, so I, I feel like this is a safe split, space. When I'm driving and someone's like on my, on my tail and trying to get around, and I'll get over to the next lane to kind of like, like let them through, but then the car in the other lane is going a little faster, and they're like really there, I will speed up till I'm going the same speed as the other car. And so then they're, they're trapped going back and forth, and then I'll finally let them through, and then I usually just wave kindly, you know, that's it, no, nothing else. Um, what about this, though? And I think this is like the most contentious thing when, in, in, in families, in life, whatever. How about when board games get introduced? Like how many of you, like raising hand, competitiveness really comes out in board games. Like I am convinced you have some of the most docile, even-keeled people that when board games get introduced into the fold, they become completely different human beings. You know, when I first met my in-laws, they were some of the nicest people ever that were. They still are. They're still super nice. Uh, but they're very kind. They're very loving. They're very humble uh, people. Very different than my family growing up. My family's German, so everything's like harsh and direct. And uh, so I was like, man, this family is just great. And then they introduced me to this card game, which was new to me at the time, called Euchre. And it's like all the gloves came off. Like people were getting into fist fights and all that type of stuff. Like it was the craziest thing. And so sometimes board games bring out something in us that we aren't ready for. Now, you might play certain board games as a family, and you might have some house rules that come with a particular game. And so I don't know if there's a particular game that you have added into your family, like, hey, this isn't officially a rule, but this is how we play. House rules can be fun and interesting. I went to the internet to find uh, some of my favorite ones that some people play with. Here's a couple. Uh, one of them is called the mugging rule, when this family plays Monopoly, and it's pretty simple, is that if I'm going around the board and I land on your spot, I have to pay you, but then I can decide to mug you if I want. And then we both roll the dice. If I roll a higher number, I get to steal $100 from you. If you roll a higher number, I go straight to jail. It's like, oh no, pretty fun, simple little twist there. One family talks about when they play the game Clue, the, the, the classic whodunit, is that once the murderer has been revealed, then it becomes a manhunt for the rest of the characters who have to make it out of the mansion. So that's pretty good. But my favorite was this one family said, hey, this is a general rule that we play for any game, and it's simple. It's that the winner gets to flip the board over in victory and triumph, while the loser has to then pick up all the pieces. Like, now that's fantastic. Like, yes, winner, pick up the pieces loser. That's just what I would do. Maybe, I don't know. Uh, but you know, this is idea though uh, of just having some house rules. Today we kick off a new teaching series called The Games We Play, in which we're looking at some topics in scripture that maybe we realize we are playing them or not. But if you are like me, perhaps you might say this is true of your life from time to time, and it's this. It's that life can feel like playing a game without the instructions. You ever been there before? 
Like no one ever told you the rules. No one gave you like the official way to play the game, so to speak, before you, how to make decisions. When do I stop? When do I go? Do I turn? Is this wise or not? Sometimes I think I can feel that that's what life feels like. And that's what this series is about is because we play various games throughout life, but no one's given us the full instructions of either how to push these games to the side or what they're actually doing beneath the surface. And so today we're going to start off by kind of piggybacking off of the game of life. How many of you guys ever played this game, the game of life? Show of hands there. Kind of a fun, classic game. It was actually originally created in the late 1800s, and it was called the checkered game of life because you had to make all these choices. And if you've never played the game of life, it's pretty simple. You make all these choices, and you go throughout the board spinning, and you get a little car with like the little pink like little stick or the, or the blue stick, and then you add you know, all that type of stuff, and you make choices to arrive at the end with as much as possible. As many cards as you can, as many kids as you can, and you make choices. Should I get fire insurance or not? Should I go to college or not? And the whole goal is simple. Do you get to retire at millionaire estates, or do you have to go to the secondary place, countryside acres? But it's simple. Get as much as you can, as fast as you can, go as far as you can, and don't care about what anyone else is doing. Now, as disciples, and and even if you're not a disciple, even if you don't call yourself a follower of Jesus, I think we would all raise our hand to say, you know what, I would love to learn to play the game of life better. Not the actual board game, but this game we call life. How do I get better at playing the game of life? Jesus gives us the secret. He says, if you want to win at the game of life, you actually have to do the opposite. You have to be willing to lose. To win at the game of life... We have to be willing to lose it. But it's interesting because the game of life, like life itself in reality, says you need to get as much as you can. In order to arrive at your millionaire estates, you got to make the right choices, you got to work hard, you got to accumulate, 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 and hopefully it'll give you some type of fulfillment at the end. But scripture calls this something else. Scripture doesn't call this wisdom. Scripture calls this idolatry. Pursuing after things other than God himself. Anything or anyone we trust in more than God. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, uh, a theologian, Timothy Keller, he puts it clearly when he says this. He says, anything more important to you than God is idolatry. And the truth of my life, and I'm probably going to venture to guess, go out on a limb, and it could be very well the truth of your life, whether we like it or not, realize it or not, We all have idols that certainly aren't helping us win at the game of life. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 32 this morning. If you're taking notes, you can follow along with us. A little bit of background as we set up to get here. The book of Exodus, second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, written by Moses. He's the leader of the Israelite people here. And in chapter 32, where we're going to start today, to kind of set the scene, what's happened. At this point, Moses has led the people of God out of Egypt. God has rescued them through all of the ten plagues, the Passover, part of the Red Sea, And now they are in this 40-year wandering in the wilderness before they get to the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And then at this moment, God comes to Moses and says, Moses, you got to come up to this mountain, Mount Sinai. We need to have a chat. I need to give you some things. And in Exodus chapter 20 or Deuteronomy chapter 5, God gives to Moses the Ten Commandments, arguably the most, most famous moral code, let alone of all time. Here's how you live life well. 
well. But he's gone for almost over 40 days. And while he's gone, his co-leader Aaron is kind of uh, in charge, and he's a little bit of a pushover, and something not so good kind of ensues with the Israelite people. This is where we're going to pick up today. Uh, uh, Exodus chapter 32, starting in verse 1. You can follow along with me. It says, so when the people saw that Moses was so long, that's how my daughter would say it, and coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. Everyone say before. Thank you. As for uh, the fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. He's just not here. So Israel starts to freak out a little bit. They're like, okay, um, it's been like 40 days, a couple weeks. Moses is gone. God let us out. Moses let us. He went up to the mountain. Anybody know where Moses at? Anybody heard from him? Like God used to speak to us, speak to him, and they went up there. They're having a powwow, and we're just kind of left in the dark. Anybody know what's going on? And everyone's like, I don't know, Aaron, you know? Nope, guy over here, no, no, no. Really. So like, okay, well, well we got to do something. We're supposed to be on our way to the promised land, and if he's never coming back, then how are we supposed to get there? And so they come up with this idea. I got it. We need something to go before us. It was God, it was the Spirit, it was Moses, but now we need something different. They use this word before, and I want to show you something interesting this morning. This word before uh, in the, occurs earlier in the Ten Commandments in which Moses uh, receives it, and then he's given this word before. So in, in our Bible, in the NIV, you see the word before here in the Ten Commandments, have no other gods before me, and then you see Israel use it again here, right? We read it and we think, same word. Now your translation might say, have no other gods besides me. But they're talking about two distinct things. Here the word before is a word that means trust. Exclusivity. It's a relational term, saying we will have fidelity with one another. Have no other gods before me. Commit your heart, your ways to nothing or no one else. But that's not how Israel uses it. Israel uses the word before that is an action word. A word that refers to like playing the game, following the leader. We need something to follow. We need something to blaze a trail. We need something to go after. And so it's very peculiar here. God is saying, be exclusive with me. Trust me. I've divined and designed this life so that you will be with me. As long as I am before you and nothing else, everything's going to work itself out. Trust me. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And Israel takes God's word takes the word before, and they twist it to mean something else in their own hearts. But yeah, 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 we need something, someone else to go before us. The word sounds similar, but they've taken what God has intended for good, and they've twisted it to make it their own. And here's where we begin to see a basic human need for even us today. It's that we all are following someone or something. And that's where idolatry begins to come to the surface. We all look for someone or something to go before us, to give us meaning, to give us hope, to give us purpose, joy, fulfillment in life. So we can start here this morning and say, if you want to know what idolatry is, you can put it this way, is anything that sits on the throne of your heart before God. 
Anything that you look for to give you meaning before God. Anything that you find ultimate trust in before God. Anything that you turn to that you say you direct my paths is an idol. And oftentimes with idolatry, it's good things that we've taken and tried to make them God themselves. We've taken what God intended for good and turned it into God instead. Ezekiel uh, in chapter 14 verse 3 puts it very clear where idolatry sits. He says, son of man, these men have set up idols in their minds. No, they, they set up idols in their bank account. They've set up idols in their fam. They've set up idols in their hearts. And put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? We begin to see God as saying, hey, this whole idea of idolatry, of things sitting on your heart before me, is kind of a big deal. Idolatry, anything that you say, I will reorient my life around you. You tell me where to turn. You tell me where to go. You bring me fulfillment, joy, meaning, purpose. You guys remember those, uh, like those uh, plastic magic eight balls? You guys remember those, like, growing up, uh, junior high, whatever? And so, like, you'd ask it a question, and then you would shake it, and then it would rise to the surface. You know, like, are we going to win today? Mm, probably not. Don't like that answer. Let's try it again. Are we going to win today? And then you just kept doing it. And that's kind of what uh, idol following is, is you're just chasing after something, shaking it. Hopefully, it's going to give you the answer. Hopefully, it's going to lead you to somewhere that you actually want to go because it sits on the throne of your heart. You see, we all have idols, like it or not, realize it or not, because we all depend on something to have direction and meaning in life. The story with Israel continues, picking back up in chapter 32. It says, so Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives and your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, a.k.a. a cow, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Okay. Well, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early, sacrificed burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Here's what's super interesting about this that we probably don't pick up on without knowing the context of this, is that their idolatry isn't new. It's not creative, and let me show you why. You see, they just were rescued from Egypt. They've been freed from oppression, from bondage. God has actually given them this gold as a means to start their new community once they get to the promised land. But they left a land in which the national uh, mascot, if you will, of Egypt was this guy. God Apis. He's a cow. (laughs) Here's this God that the Egyptians believed was the first divine being. It was eternal. It existed above all. It was a representation of the vigor and the strength that life was meant to bring to each and every individual. 
Ironically, they would pick a real bull to be the manifestation of Apis. And if this bull lived to be 25 years old without sickness or defect, they would actually ceremonially kill it off as to keep it eternal and fit. You get kind of the issue going here. And so imagine this. This is Israel, okay? And they say, we don't know where Moses has gone. God seems to kind of not be answering when, when we're calling him. And so we need something or someone to go before us. And say, well, let's make our own God. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. What should it be? Well, how about a rat? I don't know. Their teeth kind of weird, really yellow, that type of stuff. Let's not do that. Well, God talks about goats all the time. Maybe it should be a goat. Eh, I don't know. They're kind of weird. I got it. How about a cow? Yeah, no one's done that before. That sounds brilliant. Okay, well, what do we make it out of? Well, anybody know a good taxidermist? No? Uh, should we just get some rocks and, and paint some spots on it, and then we'll worship that? Oh, here, brilliant idea. Guys, what if we did this? You know the gold that God gave to us from Egypt? You know the place where they, oh, there's a, yeah. What if we took all that gold and made it into a calf instead, and we worshiped that? Man, that is the most brilliant idea you've ever had. Let's do it. You see the ridiculousness of this here? It's not even creative. They're not coming up with something new or different. They've seen it before, and that's the trick with idolatry. You've seen it before. It's been placed before you. You've seen the world around you chase after it. And yet it's trying to draw you in as well. If you were to go to Exodus 20, verse 3, have no other gods before me, and then verses 4 and 5 kind of describe what you ought not to do as a result. God literally says, don't take things of this earth and fashion it into a god and worship it, and that's exactly what they do. I find it interesting what Aaron does, though. He says, then he builds an altar of the Lord and places it before or in front of. They don't do this mutual exchange. They don't say, God, okay, we're going to get rid of you, Yahweh, and we're going to take this golden calf of our doing instead. But they worship their calf. They get up early. They throw money at it. They find joy, revelry around it. God's still there, but he's not the thing being worshipped. Now, we might think to ourselves, We'd never do that, though, right? Like, we're not those type of... We, would, we wouldn't ever dare do something so silly. Isn't idolatry very easy to see from the outside in, but pretty difficult from the inside out? Many of you know that I, I grew up in, in Southern California, so I spent a lot of time at the beach, and, and almost without fail... I used to see this happen. The tourists would come in, and they would build sandcastles. Sometimes they would just dig holes for whatever reason. People not from beaches just found really good joy in digging holes for no reason. So if that's you, stop it, okay? Not cool. But they would just dig holes, but they'd build these sandcastles. And it was always crazy because almost I could almost guarantee it was always going to happen that while this magnificent sunset was happening, 30,000 colors that God has painted in the sky as it sets over the Pacific Ocean. They would have their little sandcastle that they make, and they got their little Dollar Tree toys, and, and then they got this camera out, and you got the people like posing next to their sandcastles. Like, yeah, shit, oh, I did this. And behind them is this gorgeous masterpiece. And then some little punk kid comes and like, yeah, you like that now? And the tide comes in and washes it away 10 minutes later. That's idolatry. 
Spending time focusing on what they created with their hands while the thing that created them is in the background. Glorious, magnificent, beautiful. That's the trick of idolatry. It tries to tell you you can worship what you have created, but isn't that foolish at the same time too? See, the foolishness of idolatry is when creation is worshipped by creator. Anything that you have in this life If you have made it, so to speak, you have the ability to break it. Put it this way. Anything a good southern mama could say to, well, boy, I brought you into this world. I'll take you out of it. Anything that could fall under that category probably should not be worshipped. But it's very easy to spot from the outside looking in, is it not? What about from the inside out? See, from here, uh, Moses is going to come down from the mountain. He's going to come down from Mount Sinai, and he's going to, like, arrive, and he's, Aaron, what is happening? And Aaron's like, oh, uh, uh, whoa, like, I didn't know uh, this was a thing. Yeah, I was up with God. We were having a chit-chat, and now I come down to this. What is going on? And he literally just sells the people of Israel. He's like, well, you know, like the people of Israel, they're prone to evil. And so I didn't know how to stop them. So I just built this thing and they're just kind of them. And, and so, so God's anger begins to boil. Like, are you serious, guys? Like, like, we just rescued you in magnificent, miraculous ways from oppression, from slavery. We crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. And this is what you're doing next. And so this is how the story kind of concludes, picking back up in verse 31. And it's super interesting, two things I want to point out. It says this, So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have commanded. Committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book of life. Moses is saying, as their leader... As their shepherd, I take responsibility. Then the Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Two things happened. They get punishment, but they're also set back on the right track to the promised land. Moses stands before them saying, as your people, as your leader, therefore, I have to take some ownership in that. God is angry. God is upset. God is disappointed. But he's also a God of love, a God of grace, a God of redemption, a God of second chances. And so he will place us back on the track to the promised land. But idolatry is tricky, it's dangerous, because it proves we have the ability to worship, but it's oftentimes directed at the wrong thing. Put it this way, is that idolatry is addictive. That's why God takes it very seriously. He doesn't brush over the Israelites' idolatry. He doesn't say, try to do better. He says, yeah, you sinned. You messed up. There's going to be a price to pay, but don't worry, you are still a part of my family. Don't worry, I still have great promises for you. I still have a land and a life set out for you. However, there's a foolishness that you gave into. Right? Idolatry, it feels good in the moment. Israel just says, we just want something to follow. Is that, is that really such a bad thing? In the moment, they said, oh, we can make this now, and we can worship it now. We can have it now. 
Idolatry can be easily justified. You know when Moses is coming back? Do you know when he's coming back? Do you know when we leave and go to the next town? Okay, well, well, at least this thing can go before us. There's a crave and a satisfaction that the, the idol worship brings. We can worship it. Let's get up early. Let's have a party. Let's throw stuff at it. Yet idolatry is addictive. But God is jealous. And what I want you to hear, hear me when I say this, This is why God takes idolatry seriously. It's not purely because it's sin. God takes idolatry seriously because we have taken the best thing in life, which is him, and replaced it with a good thing. We have replaced it with something else atop the throne of our heart. God takes idolatry seriously. Not because he finds pleasure in shaming us, but because he knows what he has in store for our lives, something far greater and long-lasting. So again, realize it or not, like it or not, admit it or not, we are all prone to idolatry. And playing the game of life will say, yeah, you know that good thing? Chase it more. You know that thing you've acquired over there? Get a little bit more of it. You know that thing that, that, that social media... Your job has told you, brings you something? Yeah, 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 yeah. Fill up that cup even more. Yet to be a disciple of Jesus is to reject that and live in a quite different way. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24, 25, and 26. So then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Not find themselves, discover themselves, enlighten themselves. They must deny themselves Take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Translation. You want to win at the game of life? Be willing to lose it. Jesus raises the bar by changing the standards, the definitions perspectives of success. Be willing to give it all up. Live differently than what the rest of the game of life being played around you is, and then and only then will you find life. Because the one thing that idols won't do is they won't tell you how it's going to end. I'll give you an example. In the late 90s, early 2000s, Uh, If you were a baseball fan, you would know this as the golden era of baseball. Actually, you wouldn't. It's the steroid era of baseball because here's what would happen. You have these well-intended players who wanted to be remembered. I want people to know how good of a player I am. I want to make the Hall of Fame. I want to be etched in in, in eternity in in baseball folklore. And so then they come up with this idea. Oh, I got some juice, man. Oh, like high C? Like orange? No, no, no. I got a different kind of juice for you. And now all of these players, they're known, but they're known not because of what they did on the field, but because of what they did off. Their names have asterisks next to them because they chased after that success in a way that should not have been. Idolatry will never tell you how it's going to end. So let me ask you, though, if you, 10 years from now, were to write you a letter from the future, and it would show up, what might it say? 
If you, 20 years from now, were to write you a letter to say, hey, you might want to be careful. You might want to have a heads up. You might want to not really be on that road too much because I want to just let you know where it might lead you, what might be in that letter. Here's where we close. Well, how do we do this then? How do we take down an idol in our life? It's hard because idols aren't exclusively bad things. Oftentimes, they're good things that we've turned into gods. And idols aren't exclusive, meaning it's not easy to say, well, this is an idol, and this is an idol, and this is an idol. What might be an idol for me could be an idol for you. Or what could be an idol for you might not necessarily be an idol for me. Perhaps I could put it this way. Perhaps an idol is not that you love your kids too much, but it's that you love God too little. Perhaps an idol might not be that you're good at your job or successful at your job or you've made a really, really good career out of what you do for a living, but that your enjoyment in God pales in comparison to when that paycheck hits the bank account. So in order to take down an idol off the throne of our heart, the first step is to identify it. This is the hardest step. It's not easy. It's not fun. We might not want to admit it. You might say, well, Eric, I work hard. How do I know if my work is an idol? Eric, my kids play sports and we do a lot of stuff. How do I know if that's an idol for our family? Eric, I don't know if you've ever had a grilled cheese donut before. I don't know if that's an idol in my life or not. You can ask yourself questions like, does it interfere with my relationship with Jesus? If it was taken away, would you feel lost, broken, needing to find a new source of value in life? Is it the first thing on your calendar? What do you reorient your entire life schedule, day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month around? If you're stressed out, what do you turn to first? Or perhaps the best question is to have the courage to ask someone else. Because idols are super easy to identify from the outside in. Let me help you out this morning. Here's a list of could-be idols for you. This isn't to say if it's on this list, it is an idol for you. And it's not to say there aren't idols that aren't on this list. When I look at this list, there's certain things that I'm like, yeah, don't need to worry about that. Yep, that one. Yeah, education. Yep, that's in the past. You might say, I don't have kids, so I don't got to worry about that. You know, that's not an idol in my life. But there might be things that, for you, it might be an idol. You might find trust or fulfillment, security in one of these things that I might not struggle with, but vice versa. You have to be able to identify it, and that's hard. That's risky. But whenever we do, God meets us with grace and love to remind us. It's not going to tell you where it leads. But come before me. Let me sit on the throne of your heart above all else. Think about Israel. They got up early. They threw their gold towards it. They danced around it in joy. What in your life might mimic that? could be a good thing that's turned into a God. But once we name it, we can repent of it. We can go before God, and we can proclaim over it something like this. And this is where I want to close this morning. Something simple. And simple. I will trust and follow God more than blank. I'll trust and follow God more than a bank account. I'll trust and follow God more than that schedule. I'll trust and follow God more than that square footage. I'll trust and follow God more than that relationship. I'll trust and follow God more than anything else in this life.
But if there's anything that would sit on the throne of your heart before God, we need to surrender it over to him. So as we continue to to worship this morning, as I was preparing this message, one thing in particular God placed on my heart. One thing that God was like, hey, Eric, you can't get up here and preach this if you're not going to be willing to deal with your idol or one of your many idols. You want to know what it is? Some of you just perked up way too quickly. Come on. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're sitting in it. Just being honest. As a pastor, sometimes it's very, very difficult to not find my worth or value based on how many butts are in a seat. Is there more people here this week than there were last week? Well, well, well once the church is excised, then I'll really be something. I'll only be a good pastor if it kind of looks like this and the church functions and is this size or whatever it is. And that's a thing that on a regular basis I have to lay down at the feet of Jesus. And here's what God doesn't do. He's never struck me with a lightning bolt. But he also doesn't make me immune. So for me, how do I surrender that idol? I have to name it. I have to be aware of it. But then I have to proclaim over it, God, I will find and trust and follow you even more so than the size of this church or any ministry that I have led, any ministry that I will lead because you are good. Your spirit is gracious. And fulfillment in this life as a pastor is not found in how many seats are in a building, but is the word of God proclaimed? Is the spirit of God moving? Is it living? Is it active? Because then and then alone does God get the glory. Then and then alone does God get the praise. That's just me. I don't know what it is for you, but I'm going to guess there's at least one. Maybe two. Maybe four. But the beauty in our relationship with God is that God says, it's okay. You need to be aware of it. But come to me. I've still got you to that promised land. I've still got that life sketched out for you. I've still got those good things. Just place me back on the throne of your heart. As we continue to worship this morning, I invite you to think about what that might be for you. Perhaps there's something that the Spirit is leading in you. Perhaps the Spirit is convicting you of something. And as we sing, as we take communion later on this service, may we all be a people who's not afraid to name our idols and surrender them over to King Jesus. Would you pray with me as we continue to worship? Heavenly Father, we worship you because you are good. We worship you because you are full of grace and mercy. God, convict us. May we not be afraid of your conviction. May we not be afraid to name the idols in our life. And it's hard. Sometimes it's good things. Sometimes it's things you've given to us that we try to shape and and change it for our good. And you say, no, no, I give it to you so that you can use it for my good. Lord, may you lead us in that. Move in our lives in such a way that we are compelled by your grace. We are convicted by your spirit. We're confirmed by your word and the truth it gives to us. Lord, make me just one of the leaders of this church like Moses that says, God, if there's any sin... I go before. You tell us in the book of James, 
for me, for our elders, for all of our staff, may we set that example of setting aside those idols and follow after you. But that is our prayer for everyone as a part of our church, that we may worship you wholly and truly and genuinely. And we thank you that we get to celebrate and live in your love and in your grace. It's your name that we pray. Amen.